There are nearly 300,000 University of Alberta alumni around the world. They are your neighbors, your community members, your colleagues. You'll find them in all manner of work, in all kinds of places. And when disaster strikes, you'll find them on the front lines. These are their stories. This is The Line. If I think of the amount of First Nations in Alberta, there's very few that have uh, family doctors or nurse practitioners on a daily basis, five days a week or seven days a week. And you cannot continue to provide care in that way for a population that has some of the greatest health disparities because of colonization and because of the... That's the voice of Dr. James McCocus. He's a family doctor in Cahiwin Cree Nation and a U of A grad. We often hear that the groups most at risk from COVID-19 are the elderly and people with underlying medical conditions. And in a broad medical sense, that's entirely true. However, as Dr. McCocus makes clear, it's important to consider the social, historical, and economic factors that also contribute to health. Indigenous communities across Canada are especially vulnerable to both the virus and the consequences of the pandemic. The history of residential schools and the ongoing effects of colonialism have caused long-lasting and intergenerational effects on the physical and mental well-being of Indigenous populations, and many Indigenous communities still lack some of the basic necessities that larger cities and towns take for granted. We wanted some perspective on how Indigenous communities are doing right now, and we wanted to learn more about how the U of A's Indigenous students are staying connected. So we reached out to Shana Dion. What a beautiful day. My name is Shana Dion. Hello to all my friends. I'm from Kihiwan Cree Nation, which is about two and a half hours northeast of Edmonton. Shana has worked at the University of Alberta for 11 years now. She's currently the assistant dean, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit students with student services, a role she describes as both humbling and uplifting. It's been a lot of these moments where it's been really, really challenging. I know what it's like to be a student um, at the University of Alberta in, in that whole scope. And so to support students and to see them going through their journeys has been a very humbling experience at the same time, very uplifting to get them to see, to see them cross the stage at, at their final year is the most beautiful and overwhelming experience. I think I can, I don't even know if I can put it into words to be honest, because it's to see this exhale on the other side that they got through, that they um, were able to complete their degree, no matter what their challenges were, no matter what those, um, mountains, I guess, that they had to climb, or maybe sometimes carry that they felt they had to carry, um, that they got through it. So it's, it's been a bit of both, but I, a lot of learning, a lot of um, connecting with so many different people, which I'm so, so thankful for is the relationships I've built. Shana oversees First People's House, a place which provides an environment of empowerment for First Nations, Métis, and Inuit learners to achieve their personal and academic growth. I asked her to talk about the barriers Indigenous students face in getting their post-secondary education. Um, a lot of the barriers stem from the moment they walk, they come into the city of Edmonton, right? A, a big barrier is housing. They need connection to housing. They need a safe space to live. 
So the university has been really, really open and, you know, really incredible people across campus, uh, Terry Sperling being one of them when we, when I first um, started really wanting to develop and uh, open many doors on campus for our students so that they had a safe, accessible space to live within the city of Edmonton and more importantly, close to campus and close to community. That was really, that was really changing for a lot of our students because they live on a fixed income. Um, you know, a lot of our students live on $900 to $1,000 a month as a single person. And, and it doesn't go up very much even once you have children and have um, uh, dependents. So they live on a very small income. A lot of them try to get part-time jobs. But again, these are things that, you know, we try to support our students in to navigate the city of Edmonton once they get here. But I would say housing for sure and financial are probably the two biggest um, barriers um, because it's, I don't think people realize how expensive it is to live in the city of Edmonton, right? The cost of everything is, is high. Um, yeah, it's, it's changed a lot. So I think those would be the two most um, um, fundamental barriers and along with, and I always have to say racism, right? Racism is still something that we still contend with, with many of our students who are visibly First Nations, um, that that is a struggle for many of them. As I've talked to more people working on the front lines, I've learned it's not fair to say we are all in this together when we weren't all in it together before the pandemic started. Where we come from seems to have a dramatic impact on how the pandemic affects us. I totally agree. I, I mean, it does have impact. You know, I, I can only speak about Kihuen, like the community I'm from and where my family sits and resides and lives. You know, we haven't had clean drinking water since 1991 since I left for, from high school and I graduated from high school and to this day still don't have clean drinking water. So if we think of the most vital point of COVID is ensuring that your hands are clean. So if we remind ourselves of that and how we take advantage of the fact that we can just go to our taps, wash our hands and with clean water, whether we drink that or we wash our bodies with it, it's clean water. Um, and that hasn't been the case for my family I mean, I don't even know how many years ago that is now, but yeah, since 1991. So it does impact and it will impact people depending on where they live, right? Um, and I think for me, it's, are we all in this together? I actually asked that question back because it's true. It impacts us so much differently in various ways. And, and I think if you sit in a certain space in the socioeconomic level, in various hierarchies within, you know, the university or whatever the case would be, you might not see um, what, what I may see. And my lens will always be different. My lens will always be different because I am First Nations and I'm very, very proud of that. I'm Nehio Esqueo and I, and my lens will always be different because what I see is very much still the suffering of my people in various ways. I still see the racism. I still see the need for more care and attention and kindness for others, and I'm not sure if we're if it's truly that way across the board. I don't know if we're necessarily there yet. I, yeah, I, it's a touchy subject, but I, I, I don't know how to say that. Maybe that'll come up about a little bit more differently. But I just, it's something that I do struggle with when this we're all in this together. Is being said, I struggle with that a lot. I asked Shana how her hometown is mitigating the threat of COVID-19. 
I had read that other indigenous communities had basically isolated themselves for protection, and I wondered if that was the case for her home. As of now, Kihiwan doesn't have any confirmed cases, which I'm very, very thankful for. And what I'm really proud of is in our community, Chief and Council decided very, very early on to close the community. So the community is closed to outsiders, which is, in my eyes, the best thing they could have done for Kihiwan. We're a very small community um, with not with a few entry points, a main entry points, I should say. Um, so for me, them locking down the community, taking high precaution, ensuring that our elders are safe, our little ones, everyone from the little, little ones to the old ones were all protected. I'm so proud of that. Um, we have one of our alumni, James Makokis, Dr. James Makokis, who is um, the physician at in Kihiwen and supporting, you know, the COVID um, command center there to make the best decisions for the community health-wise. So I'm very thankful for those resources that are there, for the fundamental changes they've put in place. It has really made a difference in our community and the safety for me, when I think of my mom's there and I want her to be safe. <laughs> and this reassures me when I, when, as I go through my day that, you know, she's protected. Like many of us, Shana struggles with the inability to be there for her community in times of grief and mourning. For her, in times of crisis, there is nothing more valuable than relationships. She wrote an article about Wakutuin, which she says in Cree literally means kinship, but also refers to the interconnected nature of relationships, communities, and natural systems. She says the essence of Wakutuin drives her now. Yeah, you know, I was sitting down one day and it was it was a, a, a flood of emotions. It was a flood of emotions in a way where we lost something so suddenly because of COVID. And a bit of that is grief and loss um, because we're not able to say, see you later, or especially toward, at first it was initially about our students. We weren't able to say, see you later, or, or see you at convocation, see you on stage. All of that changed so quickly. So we didn't have that opportunity to say that one last see you later. And so that was a lot of grief and loss. And then as I sat there even more, I started writing and it just came over me of this high emotion of how do we connect with elders? How do we connect with ceremony? And it was, it was so emotional because that was the first thing that came to my mind. It was, how do we do this now? And what does this look like? Because ceremonies, the ceremonies I attend for rejuvenation and reconnection are during the summer. And my first thought was, how is this going to happen? And then it led to conversations about, yes, Kihiwan and tribal colleges. And it, it really never ended um, because I think right now all we need is kindness, right? This is what's going to get us through is, is being in a space where, um, you know, kindness is everything and costs nothing. So I just feel like if we kept in that space, um, what did that mean? And I just, yeah, I just started writing. I couldn't stop. In the spirit of keeping people together, Shana has gone to great lengths to make sure students still have access to elders at First People's House. She says that elders are foundational. I think it's important because it's the foundation of where we sit. I think it's the foundation of all things that we hold to be true. Um, when we think of First People's House and we think of our basis is not 
you know, people have values and they're kind of in line with our teachings. So if our teachings come from elders and that is our grounding point and that is how we, how we, um, how we work within First People's House, how we serve students, it's our foundation, then we cannot not have elders. It's, it's, it's actually, um, it's foundational and it would be disrespectful to not have them a part of the conversation, a part of our, our community, our team, um, about the dialogue of how we, we just did our, a bit of planning for orientation. And again, they're a big part of that, right? How do we embed them still into a virtual orientation when they've been a part of our physical orientation for so long, we can't lose that. It is actually the foundation of what we do within First People's House. To maintain the connection between elders and students, Shana had to become a bit of a tech support expert, teaching elders how to use video chat and social media. But it was so cute because, again, right, they're, they're used to phones, which is, you know, that's normal. But starting on Google Chats and Zoom and things that were even really new to us, <laughs> I thought I need to get them, I need to get them, uh, I had to teach them um, to get them on board so that they can stay connected. Like we can still see their faces and we can still meet with them and visit with them and chat with them, have tea with them. So <laughs> we walked in fully masked, gloves. This is when COVID first hit, right? So we're hyper vigilant, making sure that we're wiping down everything, brought Lysol wipes and we're sitting there talking and, you know, it's a struggle for anyone, but it was, it was that much more for, for them at the time. Now they're professionals, but at the time it was, it was, it was a real challenge to get them to know where the links are when we go into our calendars and connect to the link and here's the access code and so I tried to simplify it as much as I possibly could. And it was really cute because I would say, okay, I'm not teaching you anymore. You have to learn this. I, I won't do it one more time. And then they would struggle and I'd be like, okay, one more time, one more time, but that's it. And then they would struggle again. And I'd be like, okay, one more time, but that's it. I think I did that about, I don't know, 20 or 30 times, but you know, by the next morning they were online, they were good to go. They were locked in. They just... They just got it. And it was such a beautiful thing because the first um, social media we put out was a song and it attracted so much. And that's when I knew I wasn't the only one craving ceremony. I wasn't the only one craving song. I wasn't the only one craving our elders to have that connection, right? So it's, it's, a, it's transcendent across our community. Despite her success in connecting students with elders, Shana still has a lot of concerns. She worries the students who are from very remote communities lack stable internet. And she worries about not being able to physically see students. Not being able to read their body language means she may not pick up on the signals that everything's not okay. And that means she won't be able to offer help to some students who need it. You know, I, uh, I think it's the same kind of... Those concerns have never gone away. What my concern is with our students is that we don't physically see them. So if there is something going on in their life, we don't physically see them anymore, which is a little challenging, like especially the ones who are in, in violent relationships. That's really challenging for me. Yeah, so I, I'm reaching out as much as I possibly can to the ones that I know we really need to, but it's, yeah. Well, another thing too is um, trauma management, right? Managing their trauma. We were able to be there for them and help them through those tough times 
where students just don't walk into your office anymore. So what's happening to them that we know for certain students would come in on a daily basis, on a weekly basis and wanting to connect and have that connection. So it's, 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 it's really hard. It, I don't know how to say it. It's actually quite emotional because I, I worry about them. I worry about our students I genuinely do because what we know to be certain is that, you know, sometimes people find it hard to reach out as it is. So, you know, phoning now or emailing um, may be easier for some, but for others, it might not be. So it's a challenge of reaching out from our end to them to see how they're doing. And hopefully they're being honest with their emotions and their feelings. I think for the most part that they are, but it's, 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 it's the biggest part of our work is human connection, service of humans and serving others. So this is what's challenging. You can only do so much remote, um, but that human connection and serving others is, is big. Even though Shana and other people at First People's House have done a great job pivoting and adapting to the pandemic, I wanted to know what her concerns are going forward. What happens if they have to do this for another year? Long-term, it is about relationships. It's, it still is that we still, people still want to feel those warm hugs. They want a shoulder to cry on physically. They want that um, in-person connection with our elders and our staff. And I think for me, that losing that space, that, that year long space, if that was to be the case. Um, yeah, that, I think that would be the top, um, I guess that would bring me the most anxiety is how do we still, you know, um, with all of our teachings, how do we still do that work in the most meaningful way, the most thoughtful way. Um, and, and really when it comes down to it, our relationships are about that personal connection and um, sitting with each other and talking with each other and laughing with each other and crying with each other. So I think that would be probably my biggest anxiety if there was one um, about what that would look like. As always, it was inspiring to chat with Shana and to learn more about her perspective, her community, and Indigenous students at the U of A. The last clip I want to leave you with is a sample of the social media post she mentioned earlier a song from the elders at First People's House. Danse, this, this song, the grandmother song, is to encourage you all to stay strong and to remember the creator is in charge.
of Alberta Alumni Association podcast. This episode was hosted by me, Matt Ray, and produced by me and Chloe Chalmers. Things happen fast in the pandemic, and we're trying to keep track by noting how these episodes function as snapshots in time. We recorded our episode with Shana on Thursday, May 28th. At the time, there had been 6,955 confirmed COVID-19 cases in Alberta. As I record this, on Tuesday, June 9th, That number is now 7,229.